This is the first time, uh, first weekend I've ever preached anywhere. Generally, when I'm in front of you, I've got a guitar to hide behind, and since nobody pays attention to the bass, you guys don't notice that I screw up. But now that I'm speaking to you, if I sound like an idiot, you'll all be able to tell. I am very nervous, and so if you see me sweating a lot, 70% of that is nerves, 30% is because I'm overweight. If you've never heard me teach before, you might be wondering what kind of service you're in for. I'm sure many of you have heard the statement, if you're good at something, never do it for free. I'm not being paid today, so that should tell you the caliber of sermon you're getting. <laughs> All joking aside, though, I'm very humbled and honored to be asked to teach you guys today. I take the preaching of the word very serious and with the utmost importance. My prayer is that for any fault in my speaking, that the word of God would hold your hearts captive and that the Holy Spirit would convict you. Our text for today is going to be Ecclesiastes 11. If you'd please open your Bibles there, and if you are able, stand with me as we read the Word of God. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion of seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Lord, Show us yourself in the scriptures. Show us your heart. Show us ourselves and where our heart is far from you. In your name we pray, amen. Please be seated. A few years ago, my small group asked me if I would teach a series on finances and budgeting and and giving and how they could work that all in. And as I went through the books, this passage kept being cited again and again. So after about the 12th time of seeing that, I decided I should go read it and figure out what it actually said. This is written by Solomon, and just like most of his Proverbs and things like that, he writes in a very poetic nature, and this is the same. And just as I was terrible at poetry in high school, I cheated and had to look up the commentaries on what this actually talked about. Every commentator and every preacher that's spoken about this agreed this is about finances and this is about giving. But more than that, it's about an overall lifestyle and a heart of generosity that permeates our entire lives. We frame this series around finances because that's the easiest. And I don't mean that it's the easiest to teach or speak on, but it's the easiest part of our lives to be obedient and to be generous with. It's the easiest part of our lives to be faithful. The hard parts are our time, our ability, our health, our patience, our service, and our families. I'm sure several of you remember a few years ago, the Bittermans uh, were trying to bring their son home. They were adopting their son and bring him here. And they had a post on a website uh, where they were raising the funds to do so. My wife and I saw that, and the last amount that they needed, we had sitting in the bank, had no plans for. And we talked about it and said, you know, we'd like to give this. We, we should work to be obedient to the scriptures where it tells us to take care of orphans. So my wife called Nicole and asked if they needed it, and sure enough, they did. We wrote them a check and gave it to them. For us at that time, it it was a generous gift, but I remember thinking even in that, 
it was literally the least we could do to be obedient to the scriptures. It was the least we could do to be generous in that part of our lives. And it was the bitterman's who would be making the sacrifice and being generous with theirs. It was the bittermans who were sacrificing the future plans that they had to be obedient to the word of God to take care of orphans, to shower love on that little boy. It was the bittermans who were completely changing around their family structure. It was the bittermans who were going to have to deal with the stress and the heartache of going through the adoption process. And if any of you have adopted a child, you know what I'm talking about. It was the bittermans who were giving their entire lives to be obedient to the scripture and be generous with what God had blessed them with. If you ask me what I did for that little boy and for the Bittermans since he's come home, it's absolutely zero. I wrote a check and my part was done. Our bank statements are an easy way to see what our values are and they're very hard to argue with. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now I'm not saying you can look at somebody's bank account and under, or their bank statement and see if they're being obedient or being faithful, but I am saying you can tell what you value. If you looked at mine, you'd see I value Irish dance and music lessons as a large chunk goes to that for my kids. <laughs> but what do we spend our money on? What do we value? Generosity is a universal good, and it's a hallmark of the Christian faith, and it should be evident in every part of our lives. For this sermon, I broke it down really into two parts. One is what a biblical generous, generous life looks like, and the second is our objections to why we don't do it. First off, our generosity should appear reckless, but be purposeful. Should appear reckless, but be purposeful. Verse 1 says, cast your bread upon the waters. This is kind of a weird statement, but it's, it's very brilliant when you break it down and understand what it means. What he's referring to here is the part of the harvest. When you would harvest, you would take a large part, and that was used for your bread, what you would make out of it. And a small part was kept for planting for the next year. And what he's telling us here is take your bread, that which you should save, that which you should keep to sustain you, to get you through to the next year, that which is going to keep you alive, and cast it out. Use it for seed. You would never do that. You would never dip into your, your bread wheat. You might dip into your seed, but you would never dip into your bread because that's what kept you alive. God is telling us to dip into that, to take even that, that which sustains us, and be faithful in giving it to him. The second part is casting it on the waters. This is like a merchant who takes all his valuables, puts them on a ship, sends them out, hoping that a prophet will return to him, knowing full well that it may be pirated, that it may sink, that it may never return to him, and it'll come to economic ruin. And that happened often. Waters all throughout Scripture are used as the rough parts, the, un the unknown, the needy, the wanting, the mourning, and the risky. And this is where we're told to invest. If you were investing your money, you would never go give it to the drunk on the corner holding a sign. You would find the banker who's got a proven track record, yet God tells us to do the exact opposite, to go find that man and give it to him. If we're trying to build what the kingdom or what the world builds, then we should invest as the world invests. But if we're trying to build what God would have us build, then we should invest as God invests. This compels us to live faithfully, to stretch ourselves and trust that God will provide for us. He who sides beside all waters are blessed. Our giving should look reckless, but it should be purposeful. Our generosity should be relentless and sacrificial. Verse 2 says, give a portion to seven and also to eight. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 7 reads, 
And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege, for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Give a portion to seven and also to eight. Give large portions. Do not hinder your giving because the needy increase. Give what you have to seven, and when the eighth comes along, give that much more to the eighth. We should not cease in doing good. We should be anxious to do good and to be charitable. We should not hope that it crosses our path, but we should be seeking out those who are in need. We should be seeking out those instances where we can be a blessing, where we can serve, and where we can give our time and talents. We should hope that it is sacrificial, that our faith may be grown and our trust in God strengthened. Throughout church history, many of the saints that we remembered are remembered specifically for their acts of generosity. St. Francis of Assisi was a wealthy merchant, and much of his wealth is said to come from shady business dealings. One day, a beggar came to him asking just for a little bit, and he chased him off. As the day wore on, he realized how terrible he felt about it and took all the profits from that day and gave it to that man. And that was the start of his conversion. As he went along and, and was converted into Christianity, he prayed at a time and remembered God telling him to sell everything he had. And St. Francis started the Franciscan order, he gave up everything he had, took on wearing sackcloth after John the Baptist. He gathered men who would sell off all their possessions as they went around preaching the gospel. Anything that came to them, they would give back to the poor and to the needy. St. Nicholas is another man where our miss of Santa Claus comes from. But St. Nicholas would sell everything he had to take care of orphans and predominantly girls. Because at that time, if girls didn't have a dowry, they couldn't be married and many of them would be enter into prostitution or be sold into slavery. St. Nicholas made sure he would pay the dowry for those girls so that they could be married and taken care of. Every few years, our youth group takes a trip down to St. Lucia, who is named after St. Lucia. She's one of the third century martyrs. Her father was a wealthy Roman official who had set up also a large dowry for her that her and her mother could be taken care of after his death. Uh, her mother and her converted to Christianity when Rome was still an unchristian nation. And she was supposed to be wed to a, a wealthy man in the Roman Empire, but because he was a pagan, she rejected that. Deci instead, she decided to give all of her dowry away to support the poor and the needy. Her mother was quite upset about that because that would mean her mother also wouldn't be taken care of. And her mother said, why don't you just give it away after your death? That way you can be provided for. St. Lucia rebuked her and said, whatever you give away at death for the Lord's sake, you give because you cannot take it with you. Give now to the true Savior while you are healthy, whatever you intended to give away at your death. We've taken this into the West and we've often said, you don't need to take those vows of poverty to be obedient. And that's true, you don't need to. But we've shifted that to say you shouldn't. 
And if we can say that not being generous with any part of our lives is sinful, and that maybe taking forced poverty isn't smart, I would say those who have taken the vow of austerity are going to have a far easier time defending their decision in front of Christ than many of us will have today. Our generosity should be replete and joyous. Replete is a word I had to look up in the thesaurus just so my points all matched. But it means to be overfilled, to be, to be abundant, to be liberal in our giving. We should be liberal and joyous in our generosity. We should be abundant in our generosity. Twice in 2 Corinthians 8, in that, chap, that part that I read, Paul refers to giving as an act of grace. But as you excel in everything, see that you excel in this act of grace. It is not an act of grace that we give. It is an act of grace from God that we should be allowed to give to the building of his kingdom. To give is an act of grace, and therefore it is for our benefit. It is not a burden. It is an act of worship. It is not simply another humanitarian effort, but it is genuine worship and thus should be joyous. It is our joy to build the kingdom of God and to give to its construction liberally. As Christ gave himself for us and as the Father gave his Son, so we too should look to be generous. Just before Christ was betrayed, he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane that his joy would be fulfilled in us and his joy was his obedience to the Father, his building up of the kingdom. Isaiah 53.10 says, But the Lord was pleased, the Lord was pleased to crush him. It was the Father's joy to crush the Son that we could be made right with him that our sins would be on the head of Jesus Christ so that we could have redemption in him. It was the joy of the Father to crush him. If Christ and the Father are our models of generosity, there's no greater gift as Christ who gave up the glory of heaven to take on flesh and enter his creation and the Father who gave his only Son. For us to move from wealth to poverty to build the kingdom is a far smaller move than it is to leave the glory of heaven to take on flesh for our sins while we were still enemies of his. If you were guaranteed 100% return by a banker, and I'm not saying they just tell you that, I'm saying if they really could do it, you'd be looking at everything you could to cut out to bring every dollar to that man that you could every extra spending, you'd be picking up all the overtime you could, whatever you could to keep giving this man more. And every time you logged into your account and watched the numbers double, you'd be joyful to do so. How much more will God multiply what we can give him? And I don't mean finances. I mean our time, our abilities, our families, our children, our patience. How much more will God multiply that when we give it to the building of his kingdom? That which is given to God has been placed in good hands. I would love to hear the believer argue this. Tell me one other place that you could place anything that's been entrusted to you in a better place than in the hands of God. That which is given to God has been placed in good hands. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, I'd rather have God for my banker than all the Rothschilds. We all value generosity. I don't think there's a person in this room who would say generosity is not a good thing and who doesn't wish that they could be more generous. So why aren't we? What are those reasons that we justify our not being generous? I'd like to answer some of those objections for you today. Objection one, what if I need it or what if the cost is too great? 
What if I need it or the cost is too great? I want to answer that and say, you will and it will be. Verse 2 says, you know not what disaster may happen on earth. We have no idea how long we'll be able to do good, so do good now and do all the good you can. While you are able to give to the suffering, give and give liberally. We have no idea what disaster may come, but when it does, be caught doing good. Some take this verse to say, save for a rainy day, because we don't know what disaster may come. And I'm not telling you don't save, but I am saying if the choice comes between saving and living generous, be generous. We should hope that if the time comes where we're no longer able to give, that we can rest assured that we gave of ourselves to the building of the kingdom all we could while we could. And we should hope that in our time of need, we will find generosity to the same measure with which we were generous. And if not in this lifetime, and if not from our brother, then most assuredly from God. John Piper says, God gives us money on earth in order that we may invest it for dividends in heaven. The person who thinks the money he makes is meant mainly to increase his comforts on earth is a fool, Jesus says. Wise people know that all their money belongs to God and should be used to show that God, and not money, is their treasure, their comfort, their joy, and their security. Verse 3 says, if the clouds are full, they empty themselves. The clouds didn't make themselves and they didn't fill themselves. Just as everything you've earned, everything you've built, everything you've grown, everything you've made, you did so because of an ability that God has blessed you with. And God has saw fit to grow you in that way. It will cost you. It will cost your time, your energy, your comfort, and it may even cost your health. But in the Christian life, there's no such thing as self-dependency, but rather a recognition that all dependence is upon the Lord. Again, give heavy portions. It says when the clouds are full, they emptied themselves. They didn't trickle out. They emptied themselves. Scripture tells us he fills our cup to overflowing. And if he fills our cup to overflowing, we should be a deluge on those who are in need, who are suffering, who are wanting, and know that Christ will continually fill our cup because these are who God has called. If there's charity in the heart, it will show itself. Objection number two. What if I can't do much? Or what if it makes little difference? Verse 3 answers this for us and says, The place where the tree falls, there it lies. Wherever we are, wherever God's divine decree and providence has placed us, there we are to be a blessing. Whatever he has given you, whatever talents, abilities, strengths, resources, whether great or small, should all be used for the glory of God and the building up of his kingdom. We are an average church. Anything we do well, someone else does better. And I can name ones that do. But when NBC's doors close, and they will close, we can be known as a church who is generous. We can be known as a church who poured into the people around us. A few weeks ago, I went to a conference with Brent and Carlos on on church expansion, on doing a plant or multi-site or whatever to uh, build a church. And one of the speakers said, you know, when you're doing this, speak to those multimillionaires in your church, because every church has them, and they love to fund things like that. Carlos leaned over to me and said, we don't have any of those. And I thought, how awesome is that? How awesome is that, that we don't have any of those? When you look around and see what God has built through NBC, what he chose 
to build through us, what we have been allowed to be a part of, the impact that we've made in this community because God saw fit to do it. How amazing is that that we don't have any big hitters like that? And it shows how necessary each individual member is to this body. We are a group of average people who can build great things for God because he chose to do it through us. And together we can build great things. Together we are all necessary. Matthew 5.13 says, you are the salt of the earth. The time that this was written, salt was literally worth its weight in gold. An ounce of salt was worth an ounce of gold, and soldiers would often be paid in handfuls of salt at the end of the week. This is telling us, you are gold. Be valuable. Be cherished to the kingdom and those you're surrounded by. Whether an ounce or a pound, be valuable. You were placed into the body because of your gifts and your talents are necessary and needed for the building up of God's kingdom. Whether great or small, you were placed here for the benefit of the kingdom. Number three, what if my gift is wasted? What if I'm taken advantage of? I want to answer that and say, it will be and you will be. John Piper again says, if you give to someone who asks and are taken advantage of half the time, and the other half meets a need and glorifies Jesus, even if you don't know which is which, God does. And he doesn't really care if you got ripped off or not. We should work to be wise, we shouldn't be wantonly wasteful, but the idea that we're going to be ripped off or taken advantage of or swindled should be a secondary thought to the idea and the thought of building God's kingdom and to seeing sinners come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We shouldn't restrict our generosity because we assume it'll be t- wasted. It says whether to the south or to the north, regardless of where the need comes from or in what direction we are to give, give there and give liberally. That which is given with the intent of building the kingdom will not fail. It is God's to begin with and it is God's in the end and it will always follow his divine decree. We often make the rejection of, I'm trying to be a good steward. How often I've heard that term used as a justification for our faithlessness. Say, I'm trying to be a good steward with it and I know it'll be wasted there. I'm going to be a good steward like God tells us and I know it'll be wasted there. That's not what we're called to do. That is an excuse for our faithlessness. To be a good steward of what God has blessed you with is to be generous with it, to be liberal with it, with our time, with our abilities, with our strength, with our resources, to the building up of his kingdom. To be a good steward is to use everything that we've been blessed with to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is foolish to think that God needs our gifts. It is foolish to think that he needs our wisdom and how those resources are meted out. He tells Peter, on this rock, I will build my kingdom. He doesn't say, Peter, if you give enough, if you give to the best you can, I'll try to build my kingdom. Peter, if you preach enough, I'll do the best I can at building this up. He says, I will build my kingdom, and it is our privilege to be a part of that. It will be built with or without us. But we are given the great grace of being able to be a part of building that kingdom. Verse 5 says, you do not know the work of God. We may not see how it benefits the kingdom in this life. But we should trust when God tells us after many days it will return to us. If we send it out, it will come back to us. Objection number four, what if I get burned again? Verse 6 says, sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. 
This speaks directly to our age. Give when you are young and give when you are old. If you are advanced in years, no doubt you have been burned before. Give anyways. If you're young, you will be burned. Give anyways. You know not whether morning or evening sowing will succeed. This implies to us that some will fail, at least the way we see it. But again, we can trust that which has been given to God has been placed in good hands. Where the tree falls, there it lies. Our time is short. Death is imminent for each one of us. Do all the good while you can. In my family line, only one man has made it past the age of 60, and if I follow suit, I have fewer years ahead of me than I do behind me. And I want each of those years to be marked with a spirit of generosity and a spirit that is sold out for building Christ's kingdom. Of all the terrible things that could be said about me, I hope that at least those can't be denied. In a church our size, some of you will not be here next year. Some of you will pass on by this time next year. Make sure where you were found lying, you were found well. That your position may be well secured. Take the time you have, whether great or small, and be generous for the building of the kingdom of God. Our final objection, objection number five, simply what if? And you fill in the blank. You know your heart better than I do. You know whatever rears its head every time the opportunity to be generous comes along for you. What if, what if, what if? What are your objections? What if people may think I'm too proud or I'm doing it for the wrong reasons? What if people will look down on me for not giving enough or I have too many bills and taxes? I'm burdened with debt. I don't have any time to give to that. I don't know enough or I'm not talented enough or I'm not good enough. And Solomon answers that with this. He that observes the wind shall not sow. He that regards the clouds will not reap. If you do nothing but speculate on the clouds, the wind, the storms, the rough waters, you'll neither reap nor sow. We need to trust that God controls the wind, that God controls the clouds. There will always be clouds and there will always be wind and there will always be storms, but if we can't trust God to handle those and that he's already worked those out, we will never do anything for the kingdom. When I speak of generosity, I know we're talking about finances, but I want you to understand it's a whole heart change. It's to live a life of generosity. When I was a child, my Sunday school teacher was Sandy Kostecki. Some of you may know her. Her and her husband, Mike, were two of the most generous people that I've ever met in my life. To be honest, I have no idea how much they ever gave financially. Sandy had a chronic illness. But faithfully, she would be at Sunday school to teach for us. Many days she could barely get out of bed, but her husband Mike would support her and take care of everything she needed to be prepped and so that she could come in and teach the word to an ungrateful little child like myself. And much of what I remember the, about the Bible today is because of the generosity that Sandy showed in her faithful service to the Lord. I want to ask you finally, what if you don't? What if you don't? When you have to stand before Jesus Christ and answer how you managed everything that was given to you. When he asks how you used your talents, how you used your abilities, how he you used your strengths, what you did with your children. Did you give them over to God? What you did with your families? What's your defense going to be on how you did that? Is it going to be well done, my good and faithful serv servant? Or are you going to come in by the skin of your teeth? 
Generosity is about our heart. And if you take nothing else away from this, understand that that which has been given to God has been placed in good hands. I'm going to pray now to close this out and also for our offering. Our offering is one of the first steps in giving. But I want, this is for our regular attenders. If you are visiting for this weekend, please don't feel the need to partake. I want you to understand that this is simply the minimal part, that our finances are the easiest part, that it is our whole lives that should be given over to God. Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity to speak to your people and to speak in front of my family here at NBC, Lord. I pray that anything in which I've spoken that is against your word would be quickly forgotten and wiped from the memories, and that anything that I spoke that is true would be remembered forever. I pray that you would work in us a heart of generosity, that we would be known as a people who are generous into the building of your kingdom, into the proclaiming of the gospel, and into the caring for those who need, Lord. I pray that you'll work this out in every part of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.